listening to the Film Monsters Podcast with me and Ray. <laughs> well, hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Film Monsters Podcast. I, as always, am Nate. And I'm, um, as always, am Team Zizu, an honorary member, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't fuck with the interns and welcome back to another uh director focused episode last week we discussed uh mr david lynch and this week was ray's choice of a director and i am very excited because we are going to discuss the films the the works of the the wonderful and the quirky mr wes anderson oh i'm so excited and he's got quite the list Yes, uh, 10 feature-length films in the man's career thus far, uh, which is really impressive for any director. And what I will say is uh, 10 very consistent films. Yeah, I actually obviously enjoy some more than others, but I enjoy them all. I completely agree. I think uh, Wes is a really difficult one for me, and it's like a ranked list that I've never really publicly talked about or like done because I feel like every time I revisit his catalog, it shifts. Like, the, the placement of these films shifts for me. Because there's something to love about each one. And I feel like with the attachment that you have to these characters and, like, building on these worlds, it, it there's, like, periods in my life where I love some more than others. And it's just, it's really difficult because his he just really does have such a consistent catalog that every movie has something unique about it that makes it so much fun. Well, he surrounds himself with so many talented individuals. I mean, you look at some of the, the his constant collaborators, you know, all you have Bill Murray is a constant collaborator. And oddly enough, Owen Wilson is one of his constant collaborators. And I didn't realize how talented of a writer Owen Wilson is until I realized how involved he is in these projects. Well, you know that they were roommates together for a very long time. Oh, you're right. Yeah, that's the reason why Bottle Rocket was even made, was the two of them were roommates. And I think it's cool that it's like Owen Wilson's like, yeah, I'll be in the movie and I'll get my brother. <laughs> and that's how that's how his film career takes off. And I will say, I know like Ray and I don't normally give like star ratings or anything when we talk about films. Wes Anderson is probably one of the few directors that has a catalog this large that I have given every film of his five stars. Yeah, um, and I feel like ever since I ever since I got into Wes Anderson, every every year he releases a movie, that movie is very likely to end up on my top 10 of the year. 100%. It's always definitely in my top five uh, normally. A lot of times it's close to number one. And I think like, and, and I want to talk about this before we kind of get into diving into his career, but I think that there's this really unfair thing that people do to Wes where they like bucket him in this certain category because his films are all shot very similarly and the humor is very dark. The people are act really unnatural and like people are like, oh, he just sticks to this whole shtick that he's been doing since the beginning of his career, but the dude invented it. I mean, like, that. this style, you watch these movies and you're like, this is a Wes Anderson movie. And you can argue that you want him to do other genres, but I feel like he's done a really good job throughout his career incorporating different genre elements into each one of his films. 
Also, apparently, he hates dogs. <laughs> yeah, and apparently, uh, apparently, he hates uh, he hates other cultures too because people talk about like how he doesn't have enough representation in his films. There was complaints about Isle of Dogs. There was complaints about Darjeeling Limited taking place in India. But every time you watch like interviews with him and his cast it's always about the respect he has for cultures how he wants to pay homage to it and i think a lot of the arguments against wes are very like unvalidated in my opinion i agree and also like the thing about wes anderson too that um he gets put in this box is that like a lot of people will say things like how he sticks to the same the same type of movie but if you look at each movie beyond the quirky symmetrical pastels you'll see that all of these stories are very human stories that are very deep rooted on some very traumatic experiences that i don't know if he's the one that went through them or people around them but he writes like i think as we go through all these movies we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it but all of these movies have like a very deep human connection to them they're not just like these quirky pastel symmetrical things like, they, they run deeper than that. And he doesn't really get the credit he deserves for that. I think he hates his dad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think Wes probably has a pretty broken relationship with his dad because almost every single one of these movies has some kind of dysfunctional father in it. Almost everyone. Uh, and that's that's a reoccurring th- theme throughout his entire filmography is if it's not a relationship between a father and son, it's some sort of dysfunctional element with a familial dynamic. And I think he also deals a lot with grief and loss. Uh, and, and that's, what's really funny. I think that it has, it's a really cool contrast to have like these really pastel vibrant films that have these really dark themes and it's a really cool contrast because when you look at a Wes Anderson poster, you're probably like, I'm going to get into this quirky comedy. And a lot of times his movies, obviously they're all comedic, but they have really dark moments in almost every film in his catalog. Yeah, um, I remember, and we'll, we'll probably talk about this a little bit later, but watching the Royal Tenenbaums and you get that that scene towards the end with Luke Wilson that I was like, well, this took a turn. Yeah, with the the best, one of the best incorporations of an Elliott Smith song. In any film, uh, but yeah, I I want to start the episode by asking you, Ray, what was what was your introduction to Wes Anderson? What uh what was the film that kind of drew you into his catalog and made you want to explore everything that he had to offer? So I came pretty late into Wes Anderson, if I'm being honest, but I do remember. So I remember when I was um when I was young, I would have been like I don't know, twelve, thirteen. I was staying with my aunt, and my my nephew, not my, I'm sorry, not my nephews, my cousins, were constantly renting movies from from Blockbuster. That doesn't date me. Um, <laughs> and they would always bring movies, but I didn't speak very good English at the time, so like. If the movie was very talky, I would just check out because I obviously couldn't keep up with with the English very well. And I remember them bringing the Royal Tenenbaums. I didn't know what the Royal Tenenbaums was at the time. I just saw this weird, quirky um, movie with the cover of a bunch of people. And there was this guy with his kids in a tracksuit and a guy looking like a cowboy. And I was like, I don't know what this is. Um, same thing with the life aquatic it just i saw the poster i saw the the dvds lying around the house and i just it didn't catch my attention and i would listen to my cousins watching these movies and i my english was so rough at the time 
that I just didn't find them all that interesting, so I wouldn't sit down and watch them. Now you fast forward to like, I think 2016, I think. And a friend of mine recommended me, uh, she was like, hey, have you ever seen um, the Grand Budapest Hotel? And I'm like, I have no idea what that is. And she was like, do you not know Wes Anderson? And I was like, no, I don't, I don't know who that is. She's like, I'm going to go home now. She's like, but you have to watch the Grand Budapest Hotel. Like, that's your homework for the week. And she was so adamant. And I actually found a copy for like five bucks of the, just the standard Blu-ray. And then when I watched it, I was like, what is this? I need more. And then I started going back in the catalog. That's awesome. Uh, my experience is a little different. Uh, I had a cousin um, who was super into Wes Anderson and he used to talk about him all the time. And this was before I feel like uh, I, I was starting to fall in love with film before that, which I know we've talked about it before. I watched Edgar Wright's Hot Fuzz and that was really what kind of took off my wanting to know more about like how films are made from a technical aspect. Uh, because I'd watch Hot Fuzz and I was just so enamored with the editing choices and like the way comedy was delivered. And I had a friend uh, in middle school uh, going into high school who was a huge Wes Anderson fan. And he was like, dude, you need to watch this movie called The Life Aquatic. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll watch it. I really want to see it. And we had a public library near me that like had a huge DVD collection that you could go in and just rent from the public library. And I went and I grabbed... Life Aquatic, and I took it home, and I remember the scene with Sigur Rós towards the end of the film happened, and I was crying, and I had to pause the movie because I was crying so much, and I got to the end of that movie, and I was like, this is legitimately just one of the most beautiful and funny films that I've ever seen, and I started reading into it, and I was like, I want to know about this Wes Anderson guy, so I went back to the library, and this was before... The Darjeeling Limited was released. So I picked up Royal Tenenbaums, Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, like all the early Wes Anderson films and was like, I want to watch everything this guy has ever done. And from the Darjeeling Limited onward, I have watched every single one of his films in the theater with the exception of the French Dispatch, unfortunately. I missed it when I was in the theater and I watched it at home. But he's a director that really kind of fired me up about filmmaking because there's something not only about the way that he shoots where like there's virtually no camera movement other than like a completely static move left or right or up and down. He very rarely does anything handheld in any of his movies. It feels very stage play almost. And I was fascinated with that and like the fact that he crafts so many of his sets on his own. Like he works with the production designers to build these sets and create these worlds. And there's something about like the saturation of the films that they're so vibrant and colorful and beautiful. And that the soundtracks to all of his films were so engaging and they matched the material so well. And I was immediately addicted to his films. And I have been ever since. And he's a filmmaker that I can tell you no matter what he releases, I will always be there to watch it. I will always support him. And I just think he's one of the best of the best. Me too. He's definitely definitely up there on if i were to put like a mount rushmore which that would be a fun episode one of these days to do like a mount rushmore of our favorite directors um wes anderson would be up there for sure i i completely agree i think that he is one of the best i think that we talked about david lynch last week and uh th there's now i think it's even in webster's dictionary that there's a thing called lynchian where like people refer to it i feel like there is like anderson andersonian 
Anderson, I don't know how you want to say it, but like when you watch a Wes Anderson movie, you know it's a Wes Anderson movie. And then you get some of those tropes that are like very resonant with with that world of Wes Anderson. Like I remember when, I don't know if you saw Taika Waititi's Jojo Rabbit. I want an absolute masterpiece. Love it. When I when I saw Jojo Rabbit, the first thought I was like, "Oh, this is very Wes Anderson esque." That's the same way I feel about uh, one of my favorite films of all time is a film called Submarine from Richard Ayoade. And when I watched that the first time, I was like, "Oh, this is very Wes Anderson like." <laughs> and, and and I think there's a lot of times where you can tell that there are so many directors that are influenced by him. And uh, I think this is a perfect transition because. Uh, Director Martin Scorsese said that this is one of his favorite films of the 1990s, and that is uh, Wes Anderson's directorial debut, Bottle Rocket, which, despite the fact that this is not my favorite in his catalog, this is an incredibly impressive directorial debut. Oh, yeah. Um, I remember watching this movie and being blown away that this was his first movie. Oh, 100%. And I think that it's really crazy that this is like the start of a relatively long-term relationship that Wes has with uh, Mark Mothersbaugh yeah. for the music on this film. Uh, that He he works, I, I feel like he has worked with a lot of the same people throughout his career. Like uh, also the cinematographer for this film, Robert Yauman, has worked on with Wes on a lot of Wes's films. I want to say like the first, I don't know, at least five or six, maybe more. I think he may... So looking into it now, I think he's done the cinematography on almost every one of his films except for Isle of Dogs, uh, which is really impressive. Uh, So clearly Wes was working on Isle of... and not Fantastic Mr. Fox. So it looks like Robert Yauman worked on all the... um, the non-stop live action, action. Yeah. yeah, non-stop motion, which a cinematographer for a stop motion film is typically going to have to have experience in that background. Uh, but this movie, it, it's it's the beginning of Wes's style, but I feel like it's the least stylistic of his films. Yeah, this one I feel like it's more, e- even the acting, because it's, you know, you usually get that awkward, quirky acting. Even that wasn't very... Uh, you know, predominant in this movie, but it's still a coming of age story. It's still a story of of people discovering themselves and figuring out who they are as, as humans um, through a funny, you know, lens. But I feel like this is you already start seeing some of those tropes coming to fruition through this one. This brings this starts the reoccurring trope of Owen Wilson playing the idiot in every Wes Anderson movie, except for Life Aquatic. Uh, he's not an idiot in that movie, but but like this in the Royal Tenenbaums, like I I Dignan is one of my favorite Wes Anderson characters. I, as much as like this film doesn't rank high on my list compared to some of his other movies, there's so many great one-liners in this, and I feel like this is like the definitive. Do you do you want to call it like a hangout movie? Like it's it's not like the concept is really that complex. Owen Wilson's character wants to be like on America's Most Wanted. So he wants to do this giant heist. And what I love about this movie is that it builds up to that heist at the end. And then it's like even the people in the building when they're committing the heist, they don't even care about it. <laughs> I well, I also love like some of the other side things too, like the whole thing with housekeeper in the hotel, and that you know there's that growth going on with the other characters too, because Owen Wilson is so hell bent on his desire to be on that show, but you you have um, 
Anthony, played by Luke Wilson, who's kind of starting to move on and build this romance with with the lady in in the hotel room. Yes, which is a beautiful romance the way that it's portrayed. They do a really nice job at like contrasting that storyline with the silliness of what's occurring with Owen Wilson's character. And what I love about it is like Luke Wilson as silly as he thinks it all is, like he's always there for Owen Wilson, I feel like. There's a lot of really great lines uh, in this movie. One of my favorites is when Owen Wilson says, uh, he's like, I'm on the run from Johnny Law. It ain't no trip to Cleveland. <laughs> there's there's so many great... That's one of the things about all Wes's films I feel like we'll talk about is uh, that he has a lot of great one-liners in almost all of his movies. Also, he, this is something very like minor that I've noticed. Because Wes Anderson, it's funny. I think... Aside from the stop motion movies, all of his movies have gotten an R rating. Um, but it's really funny because for R rated movies, they're pretty clean. They're pretty soft, but also like when he uses the R rating material, so like sexuality, nudity, profanity, violence, it's done in such an artistic way that it doesn't come off as like raunchy or or like really like perverted or if it still comes out as very natural and something i love about wes anderson movies is when there's profanity like you know you you watch these movies where people drop the f-bomb and it's just like second nature but when wes anderson writes profanity in his movies it comes with an extra punch i don't know if you get that same that same feeling but i feel like when i hear like the characters say drop an f an f word in their lines it comes with a punch that gives it so much more like power to it. I don't know what it is, and maybe I'm I'm alone on that. No, I I I get what you're saying. The the one I think about all the time is in the Darjeeling Limited when Owen Wilson's like you, you fucked sweet lime. <laughs> There's something there, and there is something. I think it's because of how maybe how polished the movies feel because they do all feel like that. I think that if if I was gonna compare Wes's sense of humor, not necessarily stylistically, but like sense of humor and and the way that he delivers third act punches in all of his movies, I would probably compare him the most to the Coen Brothers. I I feel like like you think of a movie like Burn After Reading, where you watch this movie that's like uh, it, it it's this whole idea of like thinking that government secrets are being traded and all this crazy stuff's happening, and at the end of the day, like it's literally nothing. Like the punchline of the movie is that all these people are really stupid and that nothing's actually happening. And I think that that's similar to Wes's sense of humor is that all his movies have these really like silly premises, but what he does amidst the silly premises add really heartfelt moments into it. And this is obviously uh, a movie about a relationship between two friends. I feel like this is probably the least complex of Wes's films, but I also think it's really easy, easily digestible. And I think that for someone who doesn't know anything about Wes Anderson's movies, like this is a great start. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, in fact, I honestly, I don't know if you had the similar experience, but for me, um, I slowly started going down the catalog. So to me, Bottle Rock Rocket was the last movie I saw in his catalog because I just kind of kept making my way down. So I feel like that's why Bottle Rocket isn't wouldn't be as high on my list either, but because he has established himself so well now that that one just feels like a very immature attempt if you were to compare it to his style of writing and directing now. 
A hundred percent. But I do think it's a movie also that I get excited for every time I revisit it. It's a movie that I actually look forward to watching again because I like to see the little nuances in it that I feel like he built himself up to even more so later on in his career. But I do, like, like I said, I don't really have any problems with this movie. I still think it's amazing and I can't believe he pulled this off as a debut feature film. In 1996 too, that's the other thing. It's like this... This movie isn't like, oh, this came out in 2014. Like, this is 96. Like, you and I were six years old when this movie came out. Came out the same year as Fargo. Huh. Look at that. Believe it or not. And that's in- that's insane thinking about the Coen Brothers comparison. Yeah. But I want to go ahead and transition now to a movie that I will consider a masterpiece uh, for the rest of my life. Uh, one of my favorite movies that I quote, I feel like, consistently, and that's uh, Wes Anderson's uh, sophomore film, Rushmore. Also, um, Jason Schwartzman debut film. Yes, uh, and I, Jason Schwartzman is one of my favorite actors. I love Jason Schwartzman. He was in a TV show called Bored to Death that only lasted a couple of seasons with Ted Danson and Zach Galifianakis. That was hilarious. He's been in a lot of films that I really love. He also makes music uh, under the name Coconut Records, and his music's actually really good. Um, but there's something so charming about this movie. And I, I don't know about you, Ray, but this is one that like, I have a dumb smile on my face the entire runtime of this film. There's just something so like, because the innocence, like this almost like cynical innocence of Max's character throughout the movie. Like he knows what he's doing. He knows, but there's also this sense of like innocence and, um, within him uh, that you can't help but... Because a contrast that I really like about this movie is that you have Max, who is a very smart, clever kid, um, but he like completely goes dumb over this woman. And it's so interesting to see that dichotomy of seeing him this like very intellectual, smart guy who saves Latin, by the way. Yeah. Well, what's funny is, is that, you know, he portrays himself as a really intelligent guy, but he's not really good in school. Well, that's what I'm saying. Is there, yeah, there's this yeah. sense of him like he is. There's this innocent, innocent cockiness behind him. Exactly, and and the funny part about it is, is like he's a really terrible student, and 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 I think what's interesting though is like you get that contrast, and he's a very quirky character, but then when you start to realize what his home life is like with his dad, you start to feel a lot more sympathy for him. And uh, his dad is one of my favorite characters in the movie. He's, like, such a sweet guy. I also love how brash he is with Luke Wilson's character. Yeah. (laughs) He treats him so horribly. Um, And one of the things about this movie that I love, uh, you talk about Ray and I both have an attachment to music, but obviously I didn't know about Wes Anderson when I started listening to Fall Out Boy, and I didn't realize that the intro track on their very first debut record was a reference to this movie. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, uh, tell Mickey made my list of things to do today. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the debut track on uh, on Fallout Boy's first record. This is one of the most quotable Wes Anderson movies, in my opinion. I also love that rivalry he built with Bill Murray. Oh my God, yes, Bill Murray. This is a great Bill Murray performance. One of my favorite Bill Murray lines is when he's sitting at the table with Max and Luke Wilson and all them, and he says, "Kids really don't like it when their parents get divorced." <laughs> <laughs> 
Like, and just like the deadpan delivery, but there's so many beautiful moments in this. One of the moments that I feel like is really emotionally resonant without any dialogue is the scene where uh, Bill Murray jumps into the pool by himself. Oh, yeah. When he's at his kid's birthday party. Uh, And I feel like you just get an understanding that like even Bill Murray's character in the position that he's in and like how well liked he seemed. It seems like people really like him. That his life is incredibly broken. Yeah. Uh, he, he's clearly not happy with where he's at. He doesn't have the greatest relationship with his two really douchey sons. Uh, and, and like, this rivalry builds up between the two of them because uh, Max thinks that he even has a chance with this teacher that's, like, how many years older than him. And it, it's charming. That's what this... This movie is just so charming. There's so much about it to love. I love the actress who plays the teacher. I think that she does such a great job. I love the little back and forth prank montage. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's so great. Like, like this movie's really silly. And I also would say this kind of starts to jump into when Wes is getting really stylized. I, I still think it has a little bit less polish than his later films, but there's something I like about that, teetering the balance between a more conventional comedy with that stylistic punch that Wes has. Yeah, and, and and like you said, there's we were starting to see some like little nuggets of what was to come because I feel like the next film is where that style really took off. A hundred percent. I think that this was like the end of him having that sort of rough edge and that when we jump into the Royal Tenenbaums, that this is really where, like, especially, like, when you look at the costumes, the settings, the shots uh, that they managed to pull off in that film, that there's such a polish and, and a pristine nature to that 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 would exist throughout Wes's career. But I just want to finish talking about Rushmore by saying, my safety's Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> which like i said i could quote rushmore forever i love that movie but that's rushmore that's his second film and then uh west dove into uh what i would say is the beginning of what we talked about at the beginning of the episode of really like tense dynamics between a patriarch any sort of father figure and that's the royal bombs. this movie i feel like compared to rushmore and bottle rocket which has a couple of moments that are a little sad. This movie is heartbreaking. Yeah, well, and um, another thing about the Royal Tenenbaums and just movies going forward from this point on in his catalog, he you get to see a... I know, like we were talking about earlier, a lot of people give him grief because he, you know, he has this whole ordeal where he kind of sticks to the same genre, but he we get to see a side of a lot of these um, actors that we wouldn't normally see. Like, I would never see Gwyneth Paltrow doing a role like this ever again. No, but she's incredible in the role. I mean, even Gene Hackman doing a role like this. Like, his role is really over the top. And the thing is, as charismatic and goofy as he is, he's an awful person. Yeah. Oh, 1,000%. That's why I say, like, uh, like when he takes Ben Stiller's kids to go to the cockfight... Or is it a dog fight? I can't even remember what it is. It's one of the one of those. And I remember the cops the cops pull up and he's like, let's shag ass. <laughs> like they're like he's just a he's a horrible human. And like watching how he treats his kids too is just so awful. And then obviously you have this dynamic between uh Gwyneth Paltrow's character is like the um she's the adopted sibling. 
and her and Luke Wilson have uh, essentially they're into each other um, and they're not biologically related, but that they have like, obviously there's this weird thing about the two of them being together because of the familial dynamic. And I thought that was a really interesting thing to include in the movie. It is. It is. I was just going to say like Wes Anderson behind all of these quirky dialogues and quirky, like hyper stylized movies there are very like interesting topics to be talked about like i mean it's not technically incest because they're not blood related but but it is kind of being poked at a little bit that's the whole thing that really drives luke wilson's character to want to commit suicide anyway is that he he feels like he can't be with the person that he loves and obviously there's more to it than that but i feel like that's really one of the central parts as to why his character's so broken well, and then you have to, you have to watch him deal with with Eli Cash. Yes. Oh my God. Owen Wilson's performance in this amazing. One of my favorite moments in this movie, though, it's um, and I will never be able to listen to this song the same ever again. Is when they, because he does a little, a lot of montages to tell to like do a little bit of exposition, and when he does the background of of Margot and he starts playing Judy as a punk by the Ramones. Yes. There, there's that's a that's a great sequence. This this is the beginning. I feel like we didn't talk about it much with Rushmore, but aside from the score of these films, Wes always picks the best songs for his soundtracks, and they're all over the place. Like I think like Wigwam from Bob Dylan's in this movie. Uh, the song These Days from Nico, which I listen to consistently, and that's like um, the song um, Ooh La La and Rushmore. That's played through the end credits. There's so mm-hmm. many. There's so many amazing songs that he picks to put in his films, and how he manages to get the rights to all these is really impressive. Uh, but yeah, there's there's a lot of great character building in this movie, and it's definitely it's considered one of his his best. And I understand why. Um, this is one that's similar to what you said at the beginning of the episode. I feel like I saw the cover to this movie so many times before I actually watched it. Yeah. And also, let's talk about one of the greatest side characters ever in a movie, Pagoda. <laughs> I I love I love all the weird, obscure characters that Wes puts in his movies. There's always that one. You know what I mean? There's always that one like absurdist character in it. Yeah, that's just like a set piece almost. Like he's got like they'll have one or two lines of dialogue, but they're they're just there as like a this just inflates it and makes. I didn't say this at the beginning of the episode, but Wes's movies, obviously there's always like a grounded nature to them that's like hard hitting emotionally, but also his movies feel really otherworldly. They don't feel like real life. And he always, but he always adds like a very sweet, like, you know, we talked about the, the romance, the, the romance, the kind of that sweet, naive aspect of Max on Rushmore or the sweet love story in Bottle Rocket. And I feel like in this one, we get that from, from Henry, Danny, Danny Glover's character trying to court the mother as she kind of moves past that toxic relationship she had with Gene Hackman. So I feel like you get that very beautiful aspect of it through Danny Glover's character as well. Yes, I completely agree. I, I, I didn't really think about it that way, but that that is one of the sweeter moments in the film is is him trying to kind of like go after her in this situation. And you could tell she was never really happy in her relationship with Gene Hackman yeah. because he's a really terrible human anyways. But no, I agree with you on that. I think that's uh that's that's really that's really interesting to look at it because I think too 
there's a sweetness to the relationship between Luke Wilson and Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, that's true. And I love the bird. Yeah, oh, the bird is awesome. Do you know the bird, it, when they were shooting the film, got lost and they had to get another one? Oh, really? Yeah, at one point it flew off and Wes ended up having to find another one that looked exactly like it for, like, one scene. Which is so funny because, like, people, you know, Wes is notorious for always killing or hurting an animal on set. But he's been, like, really outspoken. Like, he's like, I love animals and I'm not really hurting them. <laughs> and I think that this movie has a quote that always really... uh gets me and that's when owen wilson is talking to gene hackman and he says the line of like i always wanted to be a tenenbaum and gene hackman says me too oh and yeah. it's it's like it, it's a great moment because you you get the idea the whole time like you see gene hackman's character and you're like this dude is an asshole who treats all of his family members terribly he's so self-centered he does everything for himself and in that one moment you realize he knows that he's like that it's not like this is a surprise. He knows he's an asshole. Yeah, and even when he tries to connect with um, Ben Stiller's kids, it's like you can tell Ben Stiller is not having it. Oh, 100%. I, I, and I love this movie. I, I think it's fantastic. I don't have much more to say about it. Um, I think it's one that you do need to just go in and experience, though, 100%. Right, and then, you know, on the topic of awful absentee fathers, I mean, we transition over to um, The Life Aquatic, uh, the movie that uh, I, I can say 100% changed my life uh, in, in the best way imaginable. Uh, I know this is one of Wes's more... I think this has like a 56% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, I don't understand why this one's so low. And I know that Wes, like, Wes has problems with it because this is the first film that I think he had to work with a, a huge budget. Like, the budget to this movie was $50 million. And I've watched Wes talk about this movie before, and he's like, I feel like I was in over my head with a lot of it because of, like, think about just the details and the sets in this. Like, one of my favorite sequences in this movie is when Bill Murray is introducing the boat. Yeah, and he goes through every, like, room. Yes, and it's just amazing how it is, it's it's structured. Uh, there's so much about the presentation of this movie that's amazing, but I think this is really the definitive movie about the father and son relationship where you have Owen Wilson, who is the estranged son coming back home to his father, and Bill Murray's character, he's not a good person. No, he's not. Uh, at all. You love him. But that's just because he's Bill Murray, but he's a terrible human being. And Bill Murray wants to go hunt down the jaguar shark um, and because his, his friend was killed. And he, he really does a lot of things in this movie that make him more and more unlikable. And you can tell that he's in things for himself, even like his relationship with Willem Dafoe. Yeah, um, I was just going to mention the relationship he has with the crew in general. Also, like there's this whole really like kind of scummy thing going on with with the character of what's her name Kate Blanchett yes uh Jane J Jane and there's always it, it's kind of that it kind of mirrors that relationship in Rushmore of this love triangle mm -hmm. between Bill Murray Owen Wilson and herself which becomes really difficult with uh uh with the return of Angelica Houston yeah uh, which that when they go to when he goes to try to visit her, I love that entire sequence. Um, this movie, what I love about this movie, I feel like even more than the Royal Tenenbaums, is this is the film that I feel like starts to get more into when Wes Anderson makes his worlds very fantastical. Yes. 
where it's like the Royal Tenenbaums has that absurdist humor, but it's still like a grounded familial drama. And so is this, but like the whole thing with the Jaguar shark and even like the set pieces in this feel like they're of another world in another place. Also loved the whole thing with the Jaguar shark is stop motion. Oh, it's, and it's beautiful. Uh, that entire last sequence of the film is so gorgeous, but I, I love that you have so many different character dynamics like Ray was just talking about, not just between Bill Murray and Owen Wilson or with Kate Blanchett's character, but the relationship that he has with all of the different crew members. And like, you can tell that there's a tension with them that like at first they're willing to do essentially whatever he wants, but then you can tell there's more of like a tension where they sort of poke back at him and they don't always necessarily want to get involved in the crazy things that he wants to be involved in that whole situation with with alistair the jeff goldblum character oh god yes and i talked about it on the last episode but that scene where he smacks bill murray's dog it's like the most deadpan dark scene because the dog is just sitting still and i think it goes to show the tension that those two characters have uh with one another jeff goldblum is one of my favorite characters in the movie yeah i honestly wish jeff goldblum would do more extended work with west like he always has these like little roles but i would like to see jeff goldblum take a leading thing on a wes anderson movie and I think that this film uh, has, next to, uh, this early in his catalog, next to Owen Wilson's character attempting suicide, uh, the end with what happens with Owen Wilson's character shook me up more than probably anything in any of Wes's films. Mm, yeah, I, that flipped my mind there for a second. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, and it's, it's uh, and then at the end, like, the entire thing at the end, like, that Ned probably isn't even his kid is like it, it really kind of changes the entire trajectory of the movie and how you feel about all of it this movie um i remember one time i stayed at i was so happy i stayed at an airbnb once and like i walked in and like the first thing i see is this giant painting of steve zizu and i was just i was happy it's to me it's like i there's something about the the atmosphere and the setting of this and and even the score I love all the David Bowie songs in this movie. I, I think that there's so many great moments with so many amazing songs. One of my favorite soundtrack cues in all of film history is David Bowie's Queen Bitch through the end credits of this movie. See, and for me, it's um, that Sigur Ross cue is like one of the best cues I've ever seen. Well, and I will tell you that that is the scene that made me fall in love with Wes Anderson. So I agree with you. Uh, that that entire sequence is so beautiful. That's what made me fall in love with Sigarosa's music. And this movie is just an experience. I, I think if you've never seen it before, watch it. Uh, obviously, there's like a lot of uh, references to Jacques Cousteau. I feel like that's where Wes Anderson wanted to do this. And this is the uh, first time that Wes co-wrote a film with Mr. Noah Baumbach. Oh, did he really? Yep, they co-wrote this film together. They've worked on a ton of shit together. Wes worked on uh, Squid and the Whale with Noah Baumbach. They are really close friends. And I, I'm a huge Noah Baumbach fan. Uh, but this movie is unlike anything I've ever seen in my life. I don't think there will ever be another movie like this. Uh, and I'm obsessed. And well, and Jason Schwartzman is a constant writer for him, whether he's in the movie or not. Um, and he has ties to the Coppola family. So Wes Anderson is pretty well connected at this point. Oh yeah. And, and you can tell that like, he's someone who 
at this late in his career can literally make a phone call and get anyone uh, involved in his movie. Like, he's a side character in this film, but Bud Cork from Harold and Maude? Like, he just makes that call and is like, hey, Bud, uh, do you want to come be in this movie for this small side character? Um, And he's like, yeah, sure. (laughs) Dude can literally pull anyone that he wants for a movie at this point. I mean, as we know now that he's working on a film with none other than the legendary Tom Hanks. Yeah, we can talk about that later, but his ensemble casts are ridiculous. Like... He's not just like, oh, let's make this indie movie with three basic characters. It's like, no, he will go and cast all of Hollywood, basically, in his movies. So, Ray, I have a question for you. How do you lose a train? It's on rails. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's uh, that's my transition from The Life Aquatic to what I would argue is Wes Anderson's other most misunderstood film, and that's The Darjeeling Limited. Do tell most misunderstood film. Uh, I feel like this is a film in his catalog that doesn't get as much love as it probably should. Uh, I think that it's really beautiful and maybe it's because of the relationship that I have with my brothers and the estranged relationship that I have with my dad. But this movie really hits me hard every time that I watch it. And although when we do rank these films, it's not the highest on my list. I still think that there's something really beautiful about this movie. And also, this is uh, co-written by Roman Coppola and Jason Schwartzman. And isn't Jason Schwartzman in it, too? He's one of the brothers? Yeah, yeah, he is. Yep, Jason Schwartzman, Adrian Brody, and Owen Wilson. Adrian Brody. Did this start the collaborations of Adrian Brody? Yes, it did. First time he appeared in one of his movies. And I think that this is actually probably one of my favorite Adrian Brody performances. And then did you see the the Hotel Cavalier, like the prologue thing to this? Yes, 100%. I watch it every time I watch the movie. I always make sure to do it beforehand. The uh, the DVD copy that I own before I upgraded to the Criterion, uh, the DVD copy used to require you to play it before the movie started, which I was always thrilled with anyway. Uh, but yeah, I love this movie. I think that it's really cool because of like this whole idea of these brothers just lost their dad, he just passed away, they're trying to find a way to bond together. And so to do that, they go to India to take this like spiritual journey. And I think having India as a backdrop, uh, that is a very like spiritual place that has all this like mystery behind the religion. And there's all these really fascinating elements to Hinduism and, and India in general that I think really makes it a great set piece for this movie that is really self-explorative of these three brothers who like are estranged and don't really, I feel like, like each other all that much. Yeah, there's definitely like a built tension throughout the movie between between all of them. Um, and, and there's, this is something that I love about Wes's films. They're all flawed. Every single movie he makes, there's not a character that's like, oh, the, the the likable heroes. Like they're all pretty flawed people. They're all broken in one way or the other. And I, I, what I love about this movie is the way that the brothers are introduced to each other when they get on the train is like, they're, they all act like they're really close. And at first you're like, okay, I think I know what I'm getting into. And, like, right out of the gate, it's, like, argument after argument after argument that it's just, like, they throughout the film until a very pivotal moment in the third act, 
they really are starting to just drift apart. Which is also kind of like uh, very telling of real relationship, like sibling relationships, because I feel like, you know, people with, with, with siblings, they, they tend to have that on and off relationship where they love their siblings, but often they want to kill each other. Mm -hmm. And I think what's interesting about this is we talk about the broken relationship that uh, Wes always writes about the, the issues of... Um, like fathers and sons. But in this movie, I feel like the they're all grieving the dad. We don't get a whole lot of information into it, but we do understand that their mom's an asshole. <laughs> yeah, we do. Uh, Angelica Houston is like an absent mother who, what I thought was really interesting with the backdrop of India, that she becomes a nun at a convent in the Himalayas of all places. It, like to me, I was like, what a, a, an only Wes Anderson thing that he would put this in a movie, but you do get that dynamic. And then I think the sequence where they see that boy fall into the river at the end is so beautiful. I, I like the fact that these boys, like these brothers are fighting so much and it's this one instance that they decide they need to jump in. And I think that it's all more indicative when you find out that their dad died because he got hit by a car. Oh yeah. Like, and, and like how, you know, when something like that happens, that's that, that flash and in that moment that what they would have jumped in to try to save their dad. And I think that what's interesting too is that the items that they get that are marked with their dad's initials and how they fight over them throughout the movie. The thing that also, correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm remembering this, because I haven't seen this movie in a minute. Um, they have a pretty big fight right before they all kind of band together to save that kid, don't they? Yes, they do. They have a really big fight. Uh, they, they end up, um, the, it's like right after they get the letter from their mom that says like they don't really want to see them. And they, they all like get into it and say, we're just going to leave and never come back. And I think that's worth mentioning that there's that big fight, but then the moment there is this, this, this moment of danger towards another person, they kind of put all those differences aside and work together very effectively, I might add. And then, uh, yeah, that's when um, they end up having the flashback about their dad's death and like the three of them going to pick up his car from the auto repair shop. That's right. I forgot about the auto repair scene. That's right. Yeah, and then you find out that the mom never even went to the funeral. The other thing about this movie, um, not to get too spoilery, but I think it's worth mentioning, is that end scene with the baggage, with the luggage, as they're running towards the train. Like, I just think that that scene is really powerful because after the journey that they've been through, um, and they're taking these bags and just throwing them... I, you know, just just throwing them aside to catch the train feels so metaphorical for for kind of the closure of their journey. Exactly, and I think I think what's interesting is when they do go visit their mom at the convent. It is that uh, she, uh, one of them talks about that, uh, or it's um, Adrian Brody's character talks about that he the whole movie that he had an accident and that he admits that he did try to kill himself. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and the, like after this whole situation that it brings us to light, and I feel like that moment that like the the brothers reconnect with each other because the next morning they get up and uh, Angelica Houston left, but she made him breakfast. <laughs> yeah. um, but but she ends up leaving, and then the movie ends on them just like saying that they're gonna go grab a drink together. Let's grab a drink and smoke a cigarette. <laughs> 
Um, which only Wes Anderson dialogue. Uh, but I don't know. There, this is another film that it's just like the Wes has a way of writing character dynamics like in dialogue that is just unlike any other filmmaker. And uh, this was the this was the introduction to the word gaslighting. <laughs> <laughs> when Adrian Brody's like, could she be gaslighting you? And Jason Schwartzman's like, what's gaslighting? <laughs> uh, there's... You know what sucks about you know what sucked about that moment? It's like I watched the movie, and even though I've known what gaslighting means by by the end of that sequence, I was like, do do I have it right? I was questioning yeah. my own self. And also, I would I would be remiss if I didn't mention the weird ceremony sequence that they have in this, like with the feathers. <laughs> It's so talking about this makes me want to revisit it again. And that's what I'm saying. Like when you talk about Wes's films, there's something to love about each one of these. And I feel like as much as this film is really misunderstood and I don't think that it's, um, I don't think that it's his most love in his category catalog. It is wonderful. Oh yeah. I, it is a wonderful film and yeah, it would rank lower, probably lower than you like me to rank it. But I, I still do believe it is saying something very strong and very powerful. That's the thing with Wes Anderson. There is just because a movie's at the bottom doesn't mean it's a bad movie. We can't we can't forget to talk about Bill Murray's incredible cameo in this movie. <laughs> just the very beginning, missing the train. Like, I, could you imagine Wes calling up Bill and being like, "Hey, man, I need you to come work on this movie. You're gonna run at a train, and that's it." <laughs> He's like, yeah, sure. So I think this is a perfect transition into getting into Wes's first uh, stop motion film and arguably one of the best book to film adaptations of all time. And that is Fantastic Mr. Fox. Also, I feel like this is Wes Anderson's rise, like meteoric rise. I feel like after Fantastic Mr. Fox, Wes Anderson went from being, being this quirky director to like a household name, I feel like. And also, a fun little tidbit of information for you, Ray. Uh, co-written by Noah Baumbach. Look at that. Feels like I, yep. need, a, and, feels uh, like I need to pick up on this Baumbach, dude. And if you want to know Wes Anderson's power as a filmmaker, dude gets an ana- a stop-motion animation film that he casts George Clooney and Meryl Streep as his lead. That's, 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 the, that's, the, that's the Anderson factor. Well, it's, to me, it's unbelievable. And this, I believe, is the first time that Wes worked with Alexander Desplat. Oh, is it really? Yeah, the very first time uh, because he's worked with Mark Mothersbaugh and all the other ones. It, he may, I didn't look on Darjeeling if he worked with him, but I know Life Aquatic previous, it was, um, it was Mo- Mark Mo- Mothersbaugh. Yeah. I love the score to this film. I love all of the music in this movie. I love the animation. I love that, like you said, with using the word fuck, that they say, uh, uh, what the cuss? Are you cussing with me? <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I think that is amazing that Wes Anderson's like, yeah, you can take your kids to see this movie, but I'm not taking that out of it. Uh, and the stop motion in this is some of my favorite stop motion in any film. Well, the stop motion is really awesome, but I have you read the book? I have, yes, when I was very young. Yeah, it is like pitch perfect like even even the mood that raw doll puts on the book you can it you can sense it in the movie well did you know that wes lived at rolled doll's house when they were making this and i believe they shot a lot of it in his basement really yeah he worked with the family i read a huge interview right around when this came out that he was very much i, I can't remember if it was his wife or his kids 
that he worked really heavily with when he was making this because he wanted to make sure that it was very accurate. That's insane. Um, which I which I think is really cool. Uh, and Anderson said that he signed on to the film because Roald Dahl was one of his biggest uh, personal heroes. I think he's going to do another Roald Dahl movie later on too. I'm fine with that. Honestly, I would love to see him do like a stop motion animation version of Willy Wonka. That would be cool. I think that would be amazing. I think Wes would be the perfect director to do a remake of Willy Wonka. I think he would understand it a little bit better than anyone else. Also, like, you think about all the really cool songs in this, like, Bogus Buns of Bean and, like, all of those things, and then they cue Street Fighting Man from the Rolling Stones. <laughs> like, only Wes could make up the... I also love the Beach Boys incorporations in this movie. There's, like, I remember seeing this in the theater and my jaw was on the floor, like, the entire movie. Also, like... I was like, how did he pull this off? I know that this is something so simple because it's literally, like, for, like, a split second and just in the background. But I feel like the inclusion of the Ballad of Davy Crockett as he's listening to it on the radio is so telling of Mr. Fox. I I absolutely 100% agree with you on that one and there's the this is another film that like the character dynamics it's all about a broken family it really is like the, the like you can tell that uh george clooney and meryl streep have problems there they don't have the closest relationship to their son jason schwartzman's character is kind of an outcast um I, I don't know there's just there, and there's so many incredible voice actors in this and i don't know if you know this but um Wes Anderson and Roman Coppola both do voice acting in this movie. Yeah, Wes Anderson is the the weasel. The weasel selling him the apartment, right? Yep, he's the weasel, and Roman Coppola is the squirrel that's the contractor. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Uh huh. Yeah. So it, it's it's like everything else. He gets an amazing cast of characters. I love Owen Wilson as the coach in this when he's explaining how to play that game. Also, oh yeah, I love that so much. That's it's such a great scene. Whack ball. I, I, Bill, Bill Murray is amazing. Uh, Willem Dafoe's great in this. Like, it, it, there's just he he never misses. In Are you casting. cussing with me? Yeah, it, he never misses when he casts these movies. And at this all. movie has one of my all-time favorite quotes. I, and I know the quote comes from the book, but you know, obviously, it's in the movie as well. And it's one of my all-time favorite quotes to this day. Um, and it's. When when Mrs. Fox says we're all different, but there's something kind of fantastic about that, isn't there? I love it too. I completely agree. Um, there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of great moments. I love the guy playing the banjo in the movie, and he's like, "You wrote a bad song, PD." <laughs> uh, there's there's a lot of great ones. I love the scene when they see the wolf on the on the hill. And they like look at him and he waves. And he put, like puts his fist up in the air. Yeah. I love that because it's like every other one of the characters in this movie, they're like animals that are dressed and the wolf just looks like a wolf. Like what the hell even came came in his mind at that point? I also love uh when um Meryl Streep has that line that says, Am I being flirted with by a psychotic rat? <laughs> We're talking about these movies, Ray, and I feel like next week all I'm going to do is, is watch Wes Anderson, Anderson movies. Because <laughs> I I love his movies so much. Like, there's just, so, like, thinking about this movie just brings me joy. I love the Fantastic Mr. Fox. So, um, 
that guy that the Petey, the guy that plays the <laughs> the song, the banjo song, I guess he's an actual musician in a band called Pulp. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, his name is Jarvis Cocker, and it oddly enough, that song was helped was written by him, Wes Anderson, and Noah Baumbach. That's insane. I didn't even know that. And I feel like he makes a reprieve on um on Isle of Dogs. Wow, that's really cool. But yeah, I think I I'm, don't quote me. I think. But I don't have a lot more to say about Fantastic Mr. Fox other than another masterpiece. Yeah, he, he's still on track, and then we get probably like the most, in my opinion, probably one of the more awkward ones in his catalog. I'm not saying it's not bad. Awkward is Moonrise Kingdom. Yes, but you know what's funny about it? It's one of my favorites. Oh, I love Moonrise Kingdom. I just think it's awkward because you get like this very, I don't know, like very awkward moments between two children, basically. Yes, I know. But I think that's what makes it so funny. I I think honestly that it like really, uh, really hits hard when you're watching this this relationship between these two young kids who both clearly have very strange family dynamics at home. And I think that exists obviously throughout all of his films and also a wonderful performance from Bruce Willis. Oh, Bruce Willis. I hear his name and I get sad nowadays. Like his, he's been acting the past couple of years and that it's been really messed up. Uh, it, it, like his, he can't hear correctly. It's, it's really sad, but I really love the overall feel of this movie. And I think the reason why is because I love coming of age movies and this is one of my favorite coming of age films. Also, the score to this movie is phenomenal. Really love the humor in this. I think that it's like some of my favorite Wes Anderson humor. And I feel like this is one of the first in Wes's catalog that he starts to incorporate more violence. Yeah. Uh, where the violence is very, is taken very seriously. Yeah, no, it's not. It, it's not like it's, it's. It's not like it's like a cheesy, corny violence. It's like uh, the the scene where the kid gets stabbed with the scissors. It's very visceral. Yeah, you're seeing this movie that feels like this really inflated thing where it's these that like these these kids they're falling in love with each other. The one is like a what, what like a boy scout or whatever, and uh, he's out there with um, with the scoutmaster who I, I I I honestly love Ed Norton. But this is one of my favorite Ed Norton performances. And also my favorite my favorite scene in this movie is when Jason Schwartzman's talking to the kids and he's like, I need you to understand how serious this is. Go stand over by the trampoline. And that kid is just like the, the camera pans out and it's just that kid jumping up and down on the trampoline while they're sitting. Something about that scene makes me laugh every time I watch it. Um, Which one? Well, I know like a little tidbit. I just literally found that as I was scrolling through the Moonrise Kingdom just page. Um, Susie, the girl that plays Susie. Do you remember the two twins on Us? The the ones with the the Sid and Nancy, the ones with the punk shirts. That's her. I did not know that. I think that the relationship, obviously, it's between two young kids, but I think that there's like this blossoming young love that I think that everyone can kind of understand. And, and there's something about the setting of this movie and the, the feel that it gives. And I love the storm sequence at the end of the movie. 
Oh, I love that scene too. Uh, but also like for a movie that rests entirely on two children, those are some great child performances. A hundred percent. And that's what I was saying. They're both really great. And neither one of them had had a whole lot of experience prior to it after watching some interviews. And I think that that's all the more indicative of how incredible of a director Wes Anderson is. That it doesn't matter who he's working with, he's going to get a great performance out of them. Also, the the record nerding all of us comes out when she takes that turntable around with her. Yes, 100%. I also love uh, Bill Murray's performance in this. I love the line, I don't know it verbatim, but the thing that he says, I wish I'd just like shoot up through the ceiling. Oh, and he's talking to Frances McDormand? Yeah. It's, it's like, you can tell their relationship is all over the place too. And I don't know, there's, there's something about this movie that's so charming. And I, like... I saw this movie, I worked at the movie theater when this came out. This was 2012. And I'm pretty sure I saw this in the theater four times. Wow. Yeah, I I was obsessed with it. Uh, I took my family and my family had no experience with Wes Anderson. And I was really nervous because Jess was the only person I'd shown. And so I took like my brothers and my sisters and my mom came with us. And I was really curious to how they would act. And they all left saying like, this is one of my favorite movies I've seen in years. And now they go watch everything Wes Anderson when it comes out, which I think is super cool. I do. Yeah. Uh, Wes Anderson unites families, I'm telling you. Or, you know, breaks them. Uh, clearly he's, he's dealt with the broken family on his own, but yeah, I, I love Moonrise Kingdom. I think it's phenomenal and I will always love this movie. And I think this is a transition into, I think this is the film that has really cemented Wes in the eyes of the general public as being one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. And that is the Grand Budapest Hotel, which is was a movie that had a $25 million budget that made $173 million. I love the Grand Budapest Hotel. The same feelings that you get when you talk about, like, Rushmore, you know, those, like, masterpiece moments. I know for you, Steve Zizou is, like, one that you really connect with. The Grand Budapest Hotel is, like, 11 out of 10 for me. It is so good. I quote it all the time. Like... Oh, I completely agree. This is one of the higher ones in the catalog for me, too. I think this is Wes perfecting his art form. In a way, like, I say this all the time, because uh, when I do reviews on TikTok, people ask me to review their letterbox. And I think that I say this every time Grand Budapest shows up on someone's top four, is that it is not my number one film in Wes Anderson's catalog, but I understand why it's so many people's, because I think that it is his technical masterpiece. I think that as a filmmaker, this is his magnum opus. And the score from this plot. Why isn't this on vinyl? Oh, I know. It's disappointing because I absolutely love it. I don't know why his his stuff takes so long. Because I feel like every time that there's been a release of a Wes Anderson score on vinyl, it's almost always on record store day. And it always gets a really minimum, minimal release. Or they're really super... Like, French Dispatch is readily available everywhere you go. But it's always, like, super hard to find. Exactly. I completely agree. And what I like about the Budapest Hotel, obviously we'll have a lot to say about it, but this is Wes's first time, and he does it again in the French Dispatch, but this is the first time he experiments with storytelling in a non-linear fashion. Uh, 
you're kind of jumping all over the place between the actual story that's taking place, a person that's like reading a book about the story that's being written. And so you're jumping place to place to place. And I think that it's really executed well. Also, he got to work with truly a genius, Ray Fiennes, one of my personal favorites. Who is perfect for this role. I don't think anyone else could actually do this role as well as he did. Yeah, Ray Fiennes is a genius, and this movie cements it um, for sure. I mean, I love Ray Fiennes. Obviously, he's done some great stuff, like, you know, he did the Harry Potter series and all that stuff, but this movie was made for Ray Fiennes in every way. And this movie uh, has an appearance from uh, one of my biggest celebrity crushes of all time, and that is Miss uh, Leah Sadeau. That's right, who eventually came back. Yeah, Leah Sadeau is great in this movie. Um, Jude Law it was also fantastic. Obviously, Jeff Goldblum. One of my favorite performances from Sir, uh, Saoirse Ronan. With the with the Mexican birthmark. Yes, she's fantastic in this. I I really also love Tony Revolari as Zero. Yeah, that was such a trip to see that because when I saw the Spider Man franchise movies, I was like, wait, is that him? Yes, and the, I I think everyone in this film gives an amazing performance. But this is really when Wes gets more into like he's not afraid to show intense violence. Right. He's not afraid to show violence. He's not afraid to to really explore like heavier topics, even through a comedic lens. Also, even the way that he discusses Ray Fine's sexuality in this movie, I feel like is handled really well. I love that. He's like, the older you get, you prefer the cheap uh, the cheaper cuts, which I like those. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite sequences in this, though, and it's like the scene I really love anybody who wants to get into Wes Anderson, I tell them to watch. And that's the scene where they they bobsled down the hill. <laughs> There's something about that, like the way it's filmed is just so impressive and very comedic. I love I love like the the very the various like just how he handles Ray Fine's character, like when Monsieur, Monsieur Gustave is hanging from the ledge, and he thinks he's about to die, and he's like reciting this poetry very beautifully. And then Zero hits the guy over the back. He's like, "Holy shit, you got him!" Yeah, one of my favorite lines in the movie though is when 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 Ray Fine says, "The plot thickens," as they say. Why? Why? By the way, is it a soup metaphor? Like, Ray Fiennes has some amazing lines in this movie. And I love the entire Boy with Apple plot arc. It's so stupid. It really is. I, I love the, the the whole, like, how he's obsessed with the, to his panache. Uh, what's the name of the cologne that he wears? I can't remember. Uh, but I love that whole thing that he's obsessed with. It and he <laughs> When Bill Murray rescued them and he, like, offers them some money, he's like, for your... For your kindness. And then Bill Murray's like, please, no. Did you just throw my cat out your window? (laughs) That scene, I remember seeing Willem Dafoe do that. And I was like, what in the fuck is going on? (laughs) Like, it's just, it really took me by surprise in the best way. Willem Dafoe plays a pretty evil character in this movie. Yeah, he does. Willem Dafoe is another one that I would say I would love to see him take a bigger part in a Wes Anderson movie. Like, he's always got good roles, but I feel like I want to see him as a lead. Yeah, I would love to see him as a lead as well. Like, even even like uh, like Life Aquatic, where he plays a larger role, I'd still, like, 
there's something about his presence and the way that he handles dialogue in these films that he is perfect for Wes Anderson. Similar to what we said about like Bill Murray and Jeff Goldblum, who constantly are perfect for these roles. Yeah, I want to see them take a bigger, a bigger role for sure. And also, this is the first... Well, I guess you could argue Bottle Rocket, sort of, but, like, a shootout in this movie? <laughs> like, the craziest shootout. When I was in the theater, my jaw was on the floor. I'm like, Wes choreographed a a, a, a a shootout for this. And I don't know if you know this, Ray, but do you know that he built a lot of these sets? Oh, really? Yeah, like, he worked with the production designers to build these sets to make it look so unique and different. And I love the miniatures of the hotel. Oh, yeah. I also, something that I really loved about this film, too, is the changes on aspect ratios when he jumps from story to story. Yes. And I also love, like, Wes has the budget that he could use computer-generated effects. And he's like, nope, fuck that. Everything in my movies will be practical. Yeah. Everything. And it, and it's it gives it a charm. It really does. And this is probably his most beautiful cinematography. Oh, yeah. I would say. Uh, next to uh, the French Dispatch, which I feel like his cinematography is just going to get better over the years. Um, but it's still Robert Yaoman. But it's something about, I don't know if it was the budget on this film or just the presentation. I also love the color palettes in this movie. Uh, yeah, uh, the, the very beautiful pastels. What uh, This movie just has some like... Uh, to me, this is personally his most quotable movie. Um, I love that part where he was like, when he's looking... Uh, which, by the way, random role from Tilda Swinton. Yes. Oh, totally random. He's like, you're looking so... When she's dead and he's talking to her dead corpse, like, you're looking so well. Um, I don't know what sort of cream they put on you, but whatever... And at the mark, but whatever it is, I want some. It's almost, it's almost as random as her role in Isle of Dogs. <laughs> as the pug. She, she really is incredible. I don't have much more to say about Budapest Hotel because otherwise I'm just going to keep saying it's a masterpiece, but it is. Well, that I, well, I was going to say, I have a lot more to say about Budapest, but then this will turn into a five-hour episode. <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, so now we'll transition into what I just said. Wes took a four-year break. I think we all were like, how long is it going to take this guy to put out another movie? And he released Isle of Dogs. Which... Uh- or I, I love, love dogs, dogs, as a lot of people say. Yeah, I love dogs. Uh, this movie is really hilarious. I do uh, quickly want to shout out Greta Gerwig's character, who's the foreign exchange student from Cincinnati. <laughs> Which, like, I'm in the theater with Jess, and I literally just start, like, bawling. Also, like, you talk about the pull that Wes Anderson has. Yoko Ono is in this literally Yo- as assistant scientist <laughs> Yoko Ono. <laughs> Like, I just picture him calling her up and being like, hey, Yoko, will you be in this movie? And she's like, yeah, if you let me have my name. (laughs) (laughs) And also, like, Scarlett Johansson's in this movie randomly. And Brian freaking Cranston is the lead. Also, do you know Brian Cranston's been casted in his next movie with Tom Hanks? Oh, my gosh. Can that movie get any better? Which, yeah, oh, dude. The, the next two movies, because I just saw that in his other movie, the one on based on Roald Dahl that you were talking about, he casted Richard Aode, which I talked and about earlier. And Benedict Cumberbatch. So I'm very excited about this. I know. I can't wait. But this movie, I love the stop motion animation in this movie. I don't like it as much as Fantastic Mr. Fox, but I think there is a charm to this movie. And I think that the 
the stop motion animation in this is gorgeous. And like, I love the sets with like, um, where they go into like the big piles of trash that are all the different bottles and the attention to detail, even like on the labels of the bottles. Not only that, but also like when you see the dogs talking, you see little fleas pop out of their fur. Oh, 100%. There's so much attention to detail. And you can tell that, like, this is hugely inspired by, like, Kurosawa. Oh, yeah. And even, like, even like Miyazaki. Well, like, and you think of, like, this Studio Ghibli film. Well, and that, that intro, when you have the, um, when you have the percussionists playing, you know, they're playing these giant drums. And, like, the music is obviously very, very Japanese, you know, oriented. So, it... It's really beautiful. Like, ah, uh, I just, this movie was, I, I saw this movie a couple times in theaters too, I remember. And I just remember it. So I was like, I get, I turn my back on mankind. And this is another movie that I feel like, you know, it got criticized as like that this movie has like the white savior archetype and like that it was appropriating Japanese culture. But like Wes was very open in interviews about like how he wanted this to be a love letter to Kurosawa and, and Miyazaki. And like, I, I didn't see anything. I mean, obviously I'm not a part of the culture, so I don't speak for the culture, but like, as far as being able to pick up on those things, Every single one of Wes's movies feel like it comes from a place of love, whether it's exe- whether it's executed well enough for like the Japanese culture or like you look at the Darjeeling Limited for people that live in India, like whether or not that's executed well enough. That's I don't think that's my place to say because I'm not a part of the culture, but I don't feel like any of this is done in a mean spirited way. No. And I feel like I might get in trouble for saying this. <laughs> But I'll say it anyways, just just for the sake of perspective. I feel like we in the United States, like when I mean we, I mean like society in the United States, are the only ones that really have issues with this. Um, the way I know that is, uh, you, you remember the whole ordeal with um, Ghost in the Shell, right? And everybody was really upset that Scarlett Johansson was was playing Major. Even though I've seen the, the manga and I've seen this movie and I think she did a phenomenal job. Um, I saw a really interesting interview, not interview, but a really interesting thing where they went around in Japan asking Japanese citizens what they thought of Scarlett Johansson playing major and unanimously everybody seemed really excited about it. It, Because it's only American culture. It's very similar to um, the new Paul Thomas Anderson film, Licorice Pizza, which was my favorite film of 2021. There's a scene in that film where one of the characters is this white business owner who buys out all these Japanese restaurants. And he's like, he's racist. Like, he's appropriating the Japanese culture. And Paul Thomas Anderson said... When he wrote that in the movie, it's because that was a huge thing in L.A. at that period in the 70s, was there was all these big, like, white entrepreneurs who were trying to appropriate Japanese culture. And so people watch the movie and they're like, I don't understand why they they put that character in there making those racist remarks. And I read a guy who is from, uh, from that part of the world who literally said, can white people stop trying to tell us what we can, what offends us and what doesn't? Because, because the, it, he, the, he said, like this movie approached this stuff from the 70s exactly the way that it happened and it's like it's not offending the culture it's just like i feel like everyone in society now wants to be offended by something 
which is unfortunate. But aside from all the stupidity surrounding this film, it's really a great movie. Uh, I think that it has it has a lot of things I love. I think it's one of Wes's films I've seen the least, but I still appreciate it a lot. I love that they have to make the clarification that the barks have been rendered from Japanese to English. <laughs> Yes, uh, it's so great. Uh, I I love literally like all the little nuances in that are just so amazing. I think the way that they like the that the the Japanese people actually speak in Japanese in this, like it. There's there's so many little attentions to detail in this that I absolutely love, and I think the twist in the movie is really great. Yeah, well, I was just gonna mention too. It's like those parts that are being told in Japanese and there's actual like no translation, even though it's in Japanese and I don't understand what they're saying, there is still like that emotional punch from just the way it's being delivered. And you can actually like follow the story really pretty easily, pretty seamlessly, even without translation over the Japanese portions of it. I also love that even though this movie is still PG-13 and you could, you know, it's actually on Disney+, Plus, which I think it's hilarious. Um, there is still like some of that adult humor in it that Wes Anderson is not shying away from. Like, I love that scene where he's like, there's a bitch name. <laughs> like, um, what does he say that he's talking to one of the birds and Brian Cranston looks at the bird and he's like, there's a bitch named Nutmeg. Tell her I'll meet her in, in Tokyo or something like that. <laughs> That's so funny. I I honestly, like, I love this movie. I saw it opening night in the theater. And one of my favorite things about seeing Wes Anderson movies when they open in the theater now is watching audiences' reactions to it. And people were having a blast during this movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, in fact, there was quite a handful of parents and their kids when I saw it. Seriously? Yeah, there was a handful of like parents sitting there with their kids. It was really cool, actually. That's really awesome. I, I love that kids are being exposed to this type of material at a young age because it's definitely a lot more challenging than a lot of stuff Disney's putting out. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I also feel like, because I saw it in an art house theater, so I feel like everyone that went to that viewing, they knew what they were getting themselves into. Exactly. Um, if, like... And it'll be interesting, especially with the rolled doll thing, to see if Wes keeps up with that. Um, as far as like putting more challenging things, even in like a a film that could be seen as viewed for kids, even though like this really isn't a kids film. No, not at all. So we're gonna transition into Wes Anderson's newest film, uh, which will be the last film we talk about in his catalog, and that is The French Dispatch. And this movie is really interesting. I really like the way that the story is told. Yeah, me too, because I feel like, you know, like this obviously in lame, in, in, in simplest terms is an anthology film, but at the same time, I like that it's told through the lens of these are like um, articles in a magazine. Exactly. The the vignettes make sense because it is a paper. Like it, it, it does like the way the story's broken up. I will say that I think as far as Wes is concerned, this is a little bit more inconsistent than some of his other films as much as I like it because I really was not all that into the Timothy Chalamet plot arc. I thought it was all right, but I think the other two surrounding it are way better. Even the even that like the opening one with um, Owen Wilson in the bike. Yes, I loved that. It was very simple. It was very like easy to digest. Uh, my favorite is the um, 
is the sequence with uh, Leah Sado and Benicio Del Toro. Oh, I could have watched a whole movie just on that story. Exactly. It was so well done. And then obviously, like, and I feel like no one gives him enough credit, but holy shit, does Jeffrey Wright give an amazing performance in this movie? Yeah. Um, that entire segment on the talk show with Lee Schreiber is phenomenal. I love, this is like such a random moment, but I love that part when Tilla Swinton is showing the paintings. Oh, I know. It's so good. That's that. Uh, and then it's so good. And then it's like a picture of her. It's like a nude picture. Yeah, it's so, it's so good. And then like, I, I love whenever Wes tries to tell multiple stories in one film and that, like similar to what I said with Budapest Hotel, I think it's really cool to have all those little vignettes. Um, and then obviously having someone like Christoph Waltz show up in this movie, like he just he knows how to get the best performances out of him. I will say, since I've only seen this film once, it's definitely the movie I have the least to talk about. Yeah, same. I, I only saw it in theaters when it was in theaters, and that's about the only time I've seen it. Yeah, I, I I'm sure this will get a Criterion release at some point. Uh, they're still like, well, I love dogs and this one don't have a criterion release yet. So hopefully, cause it looks like Wes Anderson, it's almost guaranteed he'll release stuff in criterion. Oh, a hundred percent. I feel like the, those will both get criterion releases. I don't know about you, Ray, but I own all of the other stuff on criterion. Same. Yeah. And, uh, I, I just think he has a perfect, uh, catalog. I, I, we can, we can sum it up. He's got two new films coming out. Uh, or he's working on now. The first one is called Asteroid City, which the uh, premise is in 1955, students and parents from across the country gather for scholarly competition, comedy, drama, and romance at a junior stargazer convention in a fictional American desert town. And this has your your regulars, Tilda Swinton, Adrian Brody, Jason Schwartzman, Jeff Goldblum, but you also have uh, Margot Robbie, Tom Hanks, Scarlett Johansson, Brian Cranston. Uh, Matt Dillon is going to be in this movie. <laughs> like my, my, Maya Hawk. Um, Steve Steve Carell. How? Like like just the people that he's able to pull, and then as Ray was mentioning earlier, uh, the wonderful Henry, the wonderful story of Henry Sugar, is the uh, the uh, Roald Dahl book that he's working on, and so far the cast is Benedict Cumberbatch, Ray Fiennes, Ben Kingsley, Dev Patel, Rupert Friend, and Richard Ayoade, which is a hell of a cast. Just. Cumberbatch and Ray Fiennes and Ben Kins Kingsley and Dev Patel, those four already have me 1,000% sold. Oh, I completely agree. Uh, ever since I watched Dev Patel in The Green Knight, I want to watch everything that he does. Have you seen them on... Um, there was a movie Dev Patel did that was incredible, if you haven't seen. Um, he did it a few years ago. I think he even got nominated. Lion. I, I have never seen it, no amazing he also did the voice in the english dub for i lost my body which was amazing oh did he really yeah for the english dub yeah i i uh i still haven't seen that movie i need to check it out oh yeah but i agree with you i mean or wait no i did i did see i lost my body it was fantastic and yeah like dev patel has really so i'm excited to see dev patel now come and work with wes anderson because i think that's going to be a really good fit for sure so that is ray and i's discussion on uh, Wes Anderson, but 
We thought we would finish it the same way we finished the Villeneuve episode, which is that since Ray and I have seen every single one, that we would go through and quickly rank his films uh, as of right now. So are you ready for this? Not really, but let's do it. <laughs> I have my list pulled up right here. So what would be in last place for you, sir, in 10th tenth, tenth place? I think Bottle Rocket. Bottle Rocket is in 10th place for me as well. I feel like as as much as we talked about that it's really a pinnacle and the start of Wes Anderson's career, I think everything else is a little bit stronger. Yeah, for sure. So what would be in ninth place for you? Uh, don't hate me. The Darjeeling Limited. <laughs> no, I totally understand. I feel like I, I get why this one's lower on people's list. You're going to be really surprised at what my ninth one is. What's up? My ninth is Isle of Dogs. Oh, wow. As, as much as I like the animation in Isle of Dogs, I feel like I connect with it less than I do his other films. I get that. So what's an eighth for you? The French Dispatch. The eighth is the French Dispatch for me, so we're in the same, <laughs> we're in the same boat on that one. Uh, I 100% agree with you. I feel like that's one I still need some more time to digest with, uh, but it's still, it's still good. So what's in seven? Uh, I, well, I was just going to add, I think it's worth noting that Wes Anderson movies are movies that you want to digest too. You don't just want to make an opinion based on, oh, I watched it once and that's it. You really want to spend time and think about the themes and the motifs in these movies because I feel like the more you think about some of these movies, the more they grow. Or at least for me, they do. I completely agree. Um, what's in seventh for you? <sighs> this is where it gets really tricky for me. Um, Gun to my head, Moonrise Kingdom. Num- seventh place for me is Darjeeling Limited. Okay. So a little bit higher than yours, but still low enough on the list. How about sixth? Oh my gosh. It keeps getting harder for me at this point. Um, I feel like at this point, a six would go to the Royal Tenenbaums. Sixth is the Royal Tenenbaums for me as well. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're matching up in, in spots, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. Uh, number five. Number five. I'm trying to see what I have left here. I think at this point I would bring in Rushmore. Five for me is Fantastic Mr. Fox. Oh, okay. Yeah, which uh, this is where it gets really hard because I feel like they're all interchangeable, honestly. Uh, oh, what's yeah, number four for, for sure. What's, what's number four for you? Um, Number four for me. Let's see. I have one, two, three. I think number four for me at this point comes in with Life Aquatic. That makes sense. Number four for me is Moonrise Kingdom. Okay. All right, top three. This is where it gets really hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah for real um top number three is fantastic mr fox number three for me is rushmore oh wow that's pretty high for you i i grow to love rushmore more every time i see it um it's i, I just have so much fun with it so what is number two sir well you ranked it isle of dogs you ranked it as your second to last this is my second to first isle of dogs that's awesome. No, and I get it with your love of animals, too. I'm sure that you're very attached to that one. Uh, oh, I am very much. Number two for me is Budapest Hotel. Which means you're number one. Life Aquatic. It'll never change. And I know you're number one and is for Budapest. Me yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, Budapest, like I said, Budapest is his masterpiece. I feel like that's his magnum opus. But I think I've explained enough on this podcast to let everyone know why Life Aquatic means so much to me. Well, and just a little tidbit I want to add about Budapest. It's not just like the movie itself is fantastic, but this is one of the movies that made me bond with my brother. Like my brother and I like vastly different things. Like my older brother, he's very into like, and this is the older brother that designs the the thumbnails for us. He likes a lot of fantasy and he likes more like, he calls it fast food movies that are like, they're fun, they're to the point, but he's not very into like the whole art house type thing. 
Um, and Budapest is one that he's like obsessed with, and so am I. So I feel like this is one of those crossover movies that him and I get to pond over a lot. No, and that's amazing. And I, that's one of the things I love about film in general is just like how you know, things affect us all differently. And I think that that's so cool that you have that experience and that bonding uh, with your brother on that one. So that's our discussion of Wes Anderson. I feel like Ray and I covered his material really well. And obviously, we'd love to hear what you guys have to think about Wes Anderson's film. So if you want to comment on the Instagram at the Film Monsters Podcast and let us know what's your favorite Wes Anderson movie, we'd love to hear about it. And next week, this is a uh, this is a pretty busy week as far as a holidays coming up. Thanksgiving, there's going to be a lot of traveling. Ray and I's lives are really busy. So we will be releasing the following week a little mini episode that we're going to talk about some of the films that we either want to or are planning on picking up for the Criterion sale in the month of November. Uh, that we both, you've, you've, how many have you picked up so far? Uh, I've picked up a whole zero right now so far. But oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I haven't had an opportunity to, to pick any of them up, but I have a huge list. So I'm planning on picking them up before the sale's over, especially I want to get Wally. So. Wally, Wally is my my crowning jewel at the end of the month. Um, I picked up what I wanted to pick up on this sale, and I'm picking up Wally when it when it comes out. I believe it's next week that it comes out. Yes, I'm excited. So, do you quickly want to mention something you watched this week? Ah, this week, this week has been kind of weird for me because I I've been between my my leg being messed up and uh, you know I've been sick and my my kid has been sick. It's been it's been one of those movies, one of those weeks where I've been not really branching out to watch anything new, but rather revisiting things. So this is more of a re rewatch, I guess I could say. I recently rewatched The Ring, the 2003 The Ring. I love that movie. I love that movie too, but like the thing about that movie that I kind of had forgotten about, first of all, that movie impacted me a lot. It came out when I was 13 and I saw it in theaters and it impacted me a lot. Um Upon rewatch right now, I realize it's not as scary as I remember it being. But I did have a similar experience with Ringu when I rewatched Ringu. Um, that I'm like, oh, these are not like as as frightening as I remember it being. But I think it does speak to how effective they were in that time because the movies have aged surprisingly well. There's nothing like all that like cheesy about it. I think Naomi Watts gives a great performance and. I was watching it and I remember being like pleasantly surprised that that movie has aged as well as it has. Um, I feel like early 2000s horror was not the best era for horror. So No, so, not so, at all. So the fact that we have some some nice little jewels from the early 2000s horror, it's pretty cool still to me. I love The Ring. I think that it's great. and I, I think I agree with you. I think it has aged really well. Uh, so what I watched this week, I watched a lot of things, but I think the thing I want to mention is I watched the new released uh, Park Chan-wook film, Decision to Leave. I, how Are you familiar at all with any of Park Chan-wook's work, Ray? Have you seen any of his movies? I don't think I've seen any of his movies. I think I've seen him more credited as a writer than I have as an actual director. Yeah, so he has directed, you know, films like Old Boy, The Handmaid, Handmaiden, Thirst. And so his movies are all like guised as one thing, but they all end up being something different. And this movie is about a detective for the police force who is investigating a murder of this high profile case in Korea of this high profile guy in Korea. And he falls off this cliff and dies. And so 
when he's investigating him, the first person they investigate is the wife. And the entire movie is they're investigating whether or not the wife has killed this guy. And he ends up falling in love with her while he's doing the case. And so it's this really fascinating movie, super psychological, really just intense. It's one of my favorite movies of the year. It's phenomenal. I'll have to check it out then for sure. Yeah, I, I really love Korean films. So that is the episode today. We appreciate you all for listening. Like I said, give us a follow at the Film Monsters Podcast, or you can follow Ray and I on our personal Instagrams at Analog C and My Exit Unfair. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Stay symmetrical, everybody. Bye.